Hey church, Brian Loritz here. I am so excited to continue in on our series on parenting. Happy Father's Day to you. Um, uh, moms, your day was a couple weeks ago, and I hope you enjoyed it and uh, you got everything you wanted. Uh, dads, get everything you can. This is our day. So I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, all the aspiring fathers, and also just want to pa pause and acknowledge um, that in a crowd uh, your size, there are, there are probably some um, dads who are there who um, maybe this is a painful time because as you remember your own father and uh, he, he just didn't do a good job. And uh, I hope this is a day where God visits you or maybe dad has passed and it's, it's painful uh, for you. And I, I hope you experience what Paul calls the God of all comfort. And maybe there's some men out there, maybe you've wanted to be a dad, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened. I, I hope God, uh, God meets you right, right where you're at. I want to walk us through Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Um, it's a key word. Uh, it's a key uh, text uh, to the Jewish community. In fact, it's so key uh, that the, the average Orthodox Jew prays it about 18 times a day. It's called, it's called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll read the text to us, uh, say a prayer, uh, and then lift up some thoughts, and we'll be on about our day. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign uh, on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Now, God, would you just speak a word of, uh, of encouragement uh, to not just dads, but to dads and moms as we are in this series on parenting, Lord God. Uh, Father, would you give us grace as we're going on this journey, uh, even to the grandparents who are represented, Lord God, deposit a word there as well. And even for those who, who may not have children just yet, Lord God, I, I pray that they would get a peek at your vision for what parenting and the family is all about. Uh, give me grace, Lord God, in concision of speech as I just try to lay out your truth to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonathan Edwards has been called America's greatest theologian. And while there is certainly a lot of truth in that assertion, I, I want to suggest to you that the life he lived was um, almost as great as the very theology he studied and preached. Of course, he wasn't perfect, but he still lived an exemplary life. If you want proof of this, uh, look no further than the generations of kids that he and his wife Sarah produced. At the turn of the 20th century, a study was done on Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' descendants, and here's what they discovered. The marriage of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had produced one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. Now, I want you to look at this list and think of the common denominator here. All these are culture-influencing, culture-transforming position, positions. The Edwards family, built on the foundation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they really helped to pierce our culture for the glory of God. I mean, their family was used greatly of God. There, there is power in family. 
Now, let me say this. I for sure am not saying that we can manufacture godly kids as if parenting was some scientific equation. We parents, and I've said that, uh, said this before in our series, we know that parenting tends to be more art than science. Uh, in fact, I love what one uh, parent said about parenting, and that is we parents tend to take too much credit uh, when our kids turn out well or right and too much blame when they don't. And yet, what can't be ignored is that if you study the life of Jonathan Edwards, this godly dad, and Sarah Edwards, this godly mom, you'll discover that every day they prayed for their children through the fifth generation. I'll say that again. Every day, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards prayed for their children through the fifth generation. What was the key to their success as parents? Jonathan and Sarah Edwards did most of their parenting from their knees. They understood the power of the family, the first institution that was ever created by God. And they appealed to God constantly for the grace in raising their children to leave a mark on this world for generations to come. The first institution, again, that God ever created is not the government and it's not even the church. It's the family. Uh, looking this first family in the eye, God decreed that they were to not only be fruitful and multiply, speaking of Adam and Eve, but they were to exercise dominion, uh, that is authority on this earth. In other words, church, God wants your family and my family to have a culturally transformative impact on our world. Hear me, church. God's primary means of transformation in our world and in our society is the family. That's right, dads and moms. That's right, sons and daughters. God has designed your family to have a culture-changing impact on this world. I love what Pope John Paul uh, II once said. He said that the family is the domestic church. And just as we hope dearly for this and other churches to leave gospel footprints on the culture, so we should expect that of our families. And yet, any sociologist will tell you that as goes the family, so goes society. There is a direct correlation between the trajectory of the culture and the corresponding health of its families. I want you to hear me. We are we're living in perilous times in our society. All signs point to a culture that is desperately sick and feeble, to a culture whose immune system, known as a family, has broken down and is in imminent danger. A few years ago, a New York Times article was called The Marriage Apocalypse, and it outlined what we already know, that in alarming rates, today's generation is giving up on the institution of marriage altogether. Many of today's young adults have chosen this path because they know the pain of a broken home and vowed early on to never experience that pain again. So it's sort of like... You know, the, the age-old statistic here in America that, you know, half of all marriages end up in divorce. Well, what we've just said is ensuing generations are giving up on the institution of marriage. Let me ask you this way. If half of all airplanes crashed, would you fly? Probably not. So we get it. So instead of marrying, many are opting for cohabitation. In fact, just a few years ago, for the first time in American history, we saw the marriage rate decline, while at the same time, the cohabitation rate, or what they, uh, what they say on my side of the street, shacking up, has increased. So that New York Times headline was no venture in hyperbole. 
we are experiencing a marriage apocalypse where people are giving up wholesale on the first institution God ever created. But why? Why is marriage and family in such trouble today? If I could boil it down, and for sure there's many reasons as to why, but if I could boil it down to its, its source, I'd have to say we have a marriage problem. I hate to say this on Father's Day because we have a manhood problem. I'm not saying that every failed marriage is the man's fault, okay, so relax. But by and large, our men are not growing up. We have a lot of boys still trapped in a man's body. Sociologists say that we are in an age of extended adolescence, where adolescence has extended to age 35. If I were to define adolescence, I'd say it this way. Simply put, adolescence is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. As a pastor, I meet these 20, 30-something-year-old boys with no sense of ambition or direction. Their biggest dream in life is how can I crack the top 100 worldwide in Call of Duty while sitting on their mama's sofa all day long. No wonder the cohabitation rate is increasing in an age of extended adolescence. It appeals to the adolescent mindset because you need to understand while boys play house, men make homes. And let me just say one other thing that the data points to. This extended adolescence typically happens in middle to upper middle class homes where the parents kind of parent according to this happiness ethic. Let me give the kid everything they want where the, where the kind of the bottom line end goal of life is my child's happiness. Well, that doesn't produce strong, vibrant, take responsibility adults. It produces prideful, arrogant, narcissistic boys trapped in a man's body who thinks the world revolves around this. Now, if all this sounds really heavy to you, it should. God has big dreams for your family and mine. We see this as we come to our text tucked away in the book of Deuteronomy. This book is known as Moses' swan song. Here is Moses giving his final speeches to the people of God. For the last 40 years, he's led them, and now the end is near for him. Knowing he won't make it to the other side with them, he gives them his parting message, his, his final thoughts. In essence, the book of Deuteronomy can be summed up in one word, obey. Obey. Just one book later, book of Joshua, Joshua would continue his thought when he would challenge God's people to choose this day whom they would serve. But at the end of the day, Joshua and his house was going to go with God. His family was going to follow what Moses commanded. They were going to obey. Now, this book feels particularly weighty because the people of God were going to enter into a pagan, secularized culture that did not believe in the God of Israel. The temptation toward idolatry was going to be intense, yet Israel needed to stand firm. And in our text, Moses tells us the only way God's people were going to make it and the only way they were not only not going to be influenced by the culture, but were to instead influence the cultures around them was to have a network of strong families committed wholeheartedly to their Lord and their God. But how exactly do we build strong families? Isn't that the question? I mean, all this is easier said than done. You might be saying, give me some practical advice here and hope here, Brian. Well, Moses tells us right in our text. Three things that go into building strong families that resist the winds of the culture and instead, like the Edwards family, transforms their culture. 
And the first thing that Moses sets forth for us and what goes into building a strong family is what I simply call authentic modeling. Authentic modeling. Notice that our text does not begin with the children, but instead Moses speaks to we dads and moms. Our text begins with a word to parents. For example, he tells the parents to love the Lord our God with the totality of our being, and that the word of God was not just to be in our heads or on our mouths, but in our hearts. And then in verse 7, we were to teach them to the children. But please notice the progression. Before we teach our children God's word, we are to model before them a life committed to the very thing we're trying to teach them. This is Leadership 101. Leadership 101 says, I can't take anybody anywhere that I'm not personally venturing towards myself. Leadership demands that we incarnate the very truths we want our followers to embody. I fly a lot. If you've ever been on the airplane, you know that right before takeoff, the flight attendant walks us through the safety protocols. And they, sing, they say things like, in case of emergency or a rapid reduction in air pressure, the oxygen mask will come down. Um, and then they say, if you have a little one sitting on your lap or, or a child next to you, they say before putting the oxygen mask on your child, be sure to have one on yourself. Before putting it on the child, they want you to have one on yourself. The, their point is clear. We can't give what we don't have. Parents, our kids are looking to, uh, uh, to us in desperate need of life, real life. They want to know if we are buying what we are selling. When Moses begins this seminal passage on the family, he sounds an interesting alarm. He says, parents, this thing called the family will only work if the very thing we are teaching our kids about God finds its way in our own hearts and lives. We must authentically model. And I'm so grateful for, for my own parents living this out before us. Part of the reason why I just assumed I'd get married is because I saw a healthy marriage in, in our home. My parents just celebrated 50 years of, of marriage. Part of the reason my brother and I are in ministry and, 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 and we're pastoring is we saw God authentically uh, being followed by my own father and mother. Authentic modeling is everything, but there's something else. It's what I call active engagement. This goes into building strong families. Look at verses 7 through 9. Moses talks about teaching our children diligently, talking about God when we sit in our house and walk by the way, lie down and rise. The undercurrent to all of this, what all of this assumes, hear it now, is quality time with our children, playing an active role in which we are fully present with our kids. This brings up the age-old debate of quality versus quantity, doesn't it? I hate that we've pitted these two against each other, but the older I've gotten, the more I'm, I'm settling into the notion that I think that it's not an either or, but a both and. Quantity does speak to quality. And what our text assumes are parents spending significant amounts of time with their children. Watch it now. Not just at their soccer games and t-ball tournaments. God bless t-ball, by the way. <laughs> but also talking with them about the things of the Lord. Why such an urgency to spend all the time we can with our kids, talking with them, every chance we get about God? Because you know this, our window of time is so small. My oldest son, Quentin, my main man, uh, when he was in high school, he ran the 200-meter relay in track. 
Now, we all understand that a relay consists of four people on a team, and their job is to pass the baton from one member to the next. But here's what I discovered watching my son run track. You don't get to pass that baton whenever you want. You only get a tight window of time to do that. Drop the baton or fail to pass the baton within the designated small space will result in a disqualification of your team. You've got to handle that baton with the utmost care and giving it away as quickly as you can in that window. Parents, we really don't have a lot of time with our kids. We have a small window to pass the baton. This should lead us to have a sense of urgency and intentionality, the kind of urgency and intentionality Moses is pleading with us to have in our text. Well, how do we maximize the small window with our kids? Yeah, authentic modeling. Yeah, authentic engagement. And finally, repetitive teaching. Look at how our text ends. Verse 7, we're told to teach God's word diligently to our kids. And look at all the places we're to talk about the word of God. I mean, over and over again, God's word is to roll off of our tongues. One special phrase, though, deserves mention. Notice the last verse when Moses says that we're to talk about God's word at the gates. What does this mean? Back then, the gates were, the, were where the elders of the city gathered and key decisions were made. It was the marketplace, the decision-making center. In other words, parents, Moses is saying to make sure that we give our kids a faith that can venture outside the home into all sectors of society. Now, this is so different from what our country wants to tell us right now. And I know you especially feel this in the Bay Area. Our country doesn't want us to have a, a, a faith that is talked about at the gates. Our, our country says, well, we actually want you to live a privatized faith. You believe what you want to believe, just don't talk about it. Keep it personal and private. Oh no, Moses says, have a portable faith that will go out into the public square. As parents, we must prepare our kids to have a bold faith that will go with them into the frat house, the quad on campus, in the back seats of taxi cabs and Uber rides, and in places like downtown San Jose or San Francisco or New York City. Our children need a bold and courageous faith. When does this happen? It doesn't happen when we drop them off at college like we're going to do with our son later on this summer. No, this happens at home where we model it and teach them the word of God over and over again. My mentor who does these things well is a man by the name of Dennis Rainey, the former president of Family Life Ministries. Uh, he's raised a remarkable family of six kids. Um, most of his children are walking with the Lord and they love Jesus. How's this happen? Well, if you walk into his house, what strikes you is a picture of Deuteronomy 6 in real times. When I walked in, I just noticed there's scriptures all over the place. In fact, when you sit down in front of Dennis, Dennis's television, uh, there plastered at the bottom of the set is a quote from the Bible that says, I will not put any worthless things before my eyes. Wow. But the first thing you see in his house is a big baseball bat with the words respect her and a ton of signatures on it. I remember seeing this bat for the first time and just looking at Dennis. I'm like, Dennis, what's up with the bat? He said, look, man, uh, I've got four daughters. And when a young man wanted to take one of our daughters out on a date, uh, he had to have an interview with me. 
Dennis said we'd sit on the porch together, and um, uh, he says I would share my faith-filled convictions with this young man who wanted to take one of my daughters out, and these convictions were rooted in scriptures. Sometimes I'd open up the scriptures with him, and uh, I would sit with these young men, and um, and I would do this um, with while my daughters were kind of cowering in the corner, wondering what was going to happen, and just kind of laying out what the Word of God had to say, along with my expectations, which were rooted in the scriptures. Finally, Dennis said if they agreed to it, they signed the bat. In other words, you weren't going to leave Dennis's house and go out on a date with one of his daughters without signing a bat. And this bat was a, movie, was a moving picture of a home dominated by the word of God. And now decades later to see the fruit of this in his kids. Now, I know, I know. Some of you are like, really, really? You're going to pull out Dennis Rainey on me? I'm not that guy. I'll never be him. In fact, do you know how bad I've messed up your thinking? I want to end by encouraging you with two things. Number one, it bears repeating. You know, we parents, someone has said, to tend to take too much credit when our kids turn out right and too much blame when they don't. Hear me, say it to yourself. You can't manufacture godly kids. You can only do your part. Corey and I know plenty of parents, not perfect parents. Perfect parents, they don't exist. In fact, perfect parents create frustrated kids. <sighs> you can only do what you can. I'm not God, neither is my wife, Corey, and neither are you. But now some of us haven't made the most of our window. There's some truth to the fact that we've been passive as parents and haven't led our kids well. I want to encourage you. It's not too late to change your, uh, to change your legacy. Have you ever heard of a guy named Alfred Nobel? Alfred woke up one day grieving over the recent death of his brother Ludwig. Uh, he opened the paper and was horrified at what he saw. The reporter had thought that Alfred had died and not Ludwig. And so he wrote Alfred's obituary entitling it, Merchant of Death Dies. Wow. The article went on to lay out how, Alf how Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, had caused a lot of harm and death. And as he read his own obituary, Alfred made up his mind he had to make some changes. So he took a vast sum of money and started a foundation to reward people who, who made peace and not destruction. His efforts were so successful that chances are when you heard the name Nobel, you didn't think dynamite, you thought peace. What Alfred Nobel teaches us is that it's never too late to change your legacy. I want you to hear that again. It's never too late to change your legacy. You might even want to whisper that to yourself. It's never too late to change my legacy. You can be that mom and you can be that dad that God has created you to be. Let me pray for you. God, I'm in the fight with my brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm in the bunker with them. I was commenting to Corey not too long ago as we are about to drop off our second of three kids off at college. I feel like I'm just learning this parenting thing. Oh, for grace, we've blown it. But Lord God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we would be Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 kinds of parents. You have created and ordained the institution of family to pierce our culture for your glory and honor. Give us grace as we lead the charge. In Jesus' name. Amen.